the ultimate foundation of our fellowship with God, of our personal assurance of eternal life, and of our joy is all based on the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom begins a brand new six-part series titled The Apostles' Proclamation. If you're a believer, do you passionately live out the gospel? Are you remaining faithfully obedient to Christ? And do you have a consistently deep and abiding love for God's people? Consider this for a moment. According to John the Apostle, the ultimate foundation for your fellowship with God, your joy, and your assurance of salvation are all based on the gospel. Throughout the series, Tom will be teaching through the Apostle John's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in John's first letter. Tom will explore three main elements of the gospel, as well as three main tests of loyalty to the gospel for all believers to consider. So Tom, wrestling with these questions, first of all, is essential for believers, isn't it? The truth is, Bill, there is not a single believer who hasn't at some point in their Christian life and experience questioned whether or not they're truly a Christian. So nothing is more important than what we're going to begin to study today because it it unfolds not only how we can examine ourselves, but it brings us back to the biblical gospel. It gives us the tests of exactly how we can know that we're a Christian, at the same time bringing us to the bedrock of why we are believers in the first place, the gospel that we have believed and that God has used to give us new life. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's open our Bibles now as we join Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. 1 John, the first letter of John the Apostle. Let me begin by letting you in on the structure. Now, let's admit that the structure of this letter is notoriously difficult because it's not at all linear like the letters of the Apostle Paul. Instead, it reflects a a Hebrew, sort of Eastern way of thinking. But there are two pictures that I think will help you understand how this letter is structured. The first picture is that of a symphony. Think of the letter of 1 John like a symphony. Often the composer writes the symphony with several movements. Typically, he weaves a few musical themes throughout each of those movements. And then throughout the symphony, he returns again and again to those same musical themes. But each time as he does so, he doesn't do so in some monotonous, repetitious way, but rather with distinct variations. And that's exactly what John does in this letter. It's like the movements of a symphony with recurring themes. Perhaps another image that will help you picture the structure of this letter is that of a spiral staircase. Think of the first letter of the Apostle John like a staircase, and down the center of that spiral staircase hang three great themes or three tests of eternal life. We noted those three tests last week. 
So as this letter unfolds, it's like the Apostle John walks around that circular staircase looking at those three tests that hang down the center from different vantage points, and each time he he sees the same truths but in a slightly different way. There are, if you use the symphony image, there are three movements in in this letter, or if you like that of a spiral staircase, there are three cycles around those themes that the Apostle John takes. Now, with that overview, let me give you a preliminary outline. And I say preliminary because I believe that this is going to be largely it, but as it unfolds, as, as I study and as we study together, it may vary slightly, but I, I don't expect that. Just don't hold me to it exactly. But here's the structure. First of all, there's a prologue. The first four verses of chapter 1 are an introduction to this letter. We're going to begin to look at that today, Lord willing. And then there are three cycles, or three movements, if you will. There are the tests of eternal life, cycle 1, that begins right after the prologue in chapter 1, verse 5, and runs through chapter 2, verse 27. And in that movement, you see those three tests. You see the test of obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word, the test of love for God and His people, and then the test of faith in the biblical Jesus Christ and in the biblical gospel. Those same three tests will recur in each of the three cycles or movements. In the first and second, they do so in the same order. In the third case, the order is slightly changed. The test of eternal life cycle 2 begins in chapter 2, verse 28, and runs through chapter 4, verse 6. And then the test of eternal life cycle 3 begins in chapter 4, verse 7, and runs through chapter 5, verse 21, through the end of the letter. Now, if you missed all of that, you're going to see it again. I just want to give you the sort of uh, introduction. That's the basic outline that we're going to follow as we work our way through this letter. In the first four verses of 1 John, John introduces us to many of the very same themes that he does in the prologue to his gospel. If you're familiar with the first 18 verses of John, as we work our way through these four verses, you're going to see those same themes recurring. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1, you follow along in your copy of the Word of God as I read it for us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, the theme of that paragraph, I would put this way, and we're going to see it unfold this week and next, Lord willing, the ultimate foundation of our fellowship with God, of our personal assurance of eternal life and of our joy is all based on the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. All of those things stem from the gospel the apostles preached. These verses lay out the foundation of the Christian faith. 
D. Edmund Hebert calls it a weighty theological prologue which verifies the heart of the Christian gospel, namely that eternal life has been made manifest in the incarnate Son of God. Now, if as I read that paragraph, you were a little confused about what it means and how to follow it, you're not alone. In fact, one writer calls John's prologue a hopeless tangle. That's a bit of an overstatement, but you understand what's going on here. I like the way Blaney explains why these first four verses are the way they are. He says, the author was so full of his subject, so overwhelmed by the truth he sought to express, that his thoughts became crowded and his expression complicated. Remember, John, Jesus nicknamed him the Son of Thunder. He was a man given to passion. And you can just see that as he starts dictating this letter, as he's upset about what the false teachers are doing to the churches he loved, as he's concerned for the people that he shepherded and cared for. His heart just sort of explodes, and it explodes all over the page in those first four verses. But we can easily grasp John's meaning if we first understand the grammatical structure of these verses. Let me show, show you how it unfolds. If you're someone who marks your Bible, then you might want to indicate some of these things. It'll help you be clear in the future. Now, the first four verses is com- composed of two sentences, both in Greek and in our translation. Verses 1 through 3 is a long, involved sentence. That's sentence number one. Verse four is a simple, you know, short to the point sentence that's easy to grasp. Now let's go back to the first sentence. The subject and verb of the first sentence doesn't come until verse three. The main subject and verb, notice in verse three, are the words, we proclaim. We proclaim. The direct object of that main verb, proclaim, is back up in verse 1. It's the four phrases there in verse 1. And then you'll notice verse 1 concludes with a prepositional phrase that essentially means all four of those preceding phrases are concerning or they are about the word of life. Now you'll notice the dashes around verse 2. Verse 2 is in fact parenthetical. That's why our translators have used those dashes. Because verse 2 is, is simply explaining how 12 ordinary men like John came to hear and to see and to look at and touch the Son of God. It's because of the miracle of the incarnation. Then verses 3 and 4 explain the reason for the apostles' proclamation. So let me, let me recap it this way. The main point of this paragraph is in verse 3. We, that is the apostles, proclaim. What did they proclaim? Verses 1 and 2. Why did they proclaim that message? Notice in the middle of verse 3, we proclaim so that. And the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 is the reason for the apostles' proclamation. Now, let's look at it together. In this prologue, John points out three key features of their proclamation. First of all, in the first three verses, we're going to look at the focus of their proclamation. That's this morning, Lord willing. Then we're going to look at the integrity of their proclamation, and and that's back in verses 1 and 2. So there there are a couple of themes working together in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at one of those today, the focus of their proclamation. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the integrity of their proclamation. And then also we'll look in verses 3 and 4 at the purpose of their proclamation. 
But today, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let's consider just the first of those three features, the focus of the apostles' proclamation. From the language that John uses in these verses, it's clear that his ultimate focus is not on an impersonal message, but rather the person at the center of that message. The focus of the apostles' proclamation is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. He was the center of the apostles' message. Now, in the first three verses, John is going to explain for us several crucial truths about Jesus Christ, several crucial truths about this person at the center, the focus of their message. So let's look at them together, the truths about Jesus Christ. First of all, in verse 1, he begins by teaching us that he existed eternally. He existed eternally. The first four clauses in verse 1 are, remember, the direct object of the verb we proclaim in verse 3. And he begins each of these clauses with the word what. That's because he's talking about the content of the message that he proclaimed. But the message, as we'll see, is about a person. Now, his first description of the person at the center of his message is in verse 1, the very beginning, what was from the beginning. Now, right away, we're confronted with a couple of possibilities. The, the word beginning could refer to from the beginning of the incarnation. In other words, he could be saying, we witnessed Jesus' entire life. That's what we're giving witness to. Not that they were there for the birth, but we give witness to it, beginning with the events described in Luke 1 and 2. Beginning could mean before the incarnation. The fact that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. Or thirdly, it could mean that he was before creation or that he existed in eternity past. Jesus existed from all eternity. I think that's exactly what John is teaching. Because if you go over to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, you'll notice that, that John uses exactly the same wording of God the Father, of his eternal existence. He says, you know him who has been from the beginning. Also, when you go back to chapter 1 and look at that first phrase, you'll notice that there is a remarkable similarity between this line and the first line of John's gospel, which makes it far more likely that John is making exactly the same point here in his letter that he made back in his gospel. Turn back to John chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, as you recognize, echoes the first words of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John is saying, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, notice how he says, was the Word. The Greek word translated was there is a very important word. It means to be or to exist. And in the Greek text, the verb is in the imperfect tense, which implies a continuous state. We could translate it like this. In the beginning, the word was. That is, he already was in existence. He was already there. He continually was. There was never a time when the word was not. That's the 
universal testimony of Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ existed before creation. It's again and again. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 9-6, about the coming child to be born. You remember, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And how is Jesus described there as the mighty God, eternal Father, meaning that He is the Father of eternity, but there's never a time when He didn't exist. Micah 5.2, which prophesies the place of Jesus' birth at Bethlehem, says prior to His birth, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And Jesus himself claimed this in John 17, verse 5. He said, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He says, Father, I shared your glory before anything was made. Now, why is this important? Well, you remember last time I told you that one of the false teachers that was contemporary with John, actually there in Ephesus, was a man named Serenthus. Serenthus taught that the spirit of Messiah descended on the human Jesus at his baptism and left him just before his crucifixion. Well, John's going to have nothing to do with that. So his very first words are a declaration that Jesus existed even before the incarnation, before creation, he existed in eternity past. He was from the beginning. A second truth, back in John chapter 1, a second truth that the apostles taught about Jesus was this, he was truly human. He was truly human. The next three clauses in verse 1 are a kind of second ballistic missile aimed at the false teachers who had attacked the churches John loves. You remember one form of the false teaching that John was confronting was a form of pre-Gnosticism. And some of the teachers in both pre-Gnosticism and Gnosticism taught a heretical view of Christ called docetism. Docetism taught that Jesus only seemed or appeared to have a real body. They were operating on that sort of Gnostic idea that matter is evil and spirit is good, so, so somebody like Jesus can't have a real body because that contaminates him. John immediately makes it clear that Jesus was no apparition, he was no mere appearance, no vision, no group hallucination, he was truly human. He possessed real humanity, and that reality was tested by the apostles' physical senses. Notice the verbs that summarize their experiences. Verse 1, what we have heard. John says, listen, with our own ears, we heard Jesus teach And boy, did they hear Jesus teach countless hours over three and a half years. He says, what we have seen with our eyes. John says, we saw Jesus Christ. We saw him at every time of the day and night. We saw him in many places across the land of Israel. We saw him over and over again for three and a half years. And oh, just in case you think this was a spiritual vision, notice he adds, with our eyes. What he saw was not some internal spiritual vision. It was a real person in the real physical world. He adds in verse 1, what we have looked at. This is a different Greek word than have seen. It means to look at something intently. It describes the literal physical scrutiny of something with your eyes so that you can intelligently interpret its nature and its significance. Burdick writes, They scrutinized Jesus so thoroughly that they had no doubt 
concerning his physical reality. He adds in verse 1, and touched with our hands. The apostles intentionally touched the physical body of Jesus to verify its physical reality. Again, by adding with our hands, he underscores this happened really physically. Of course, it certainly happened before Jesus' death during the three and a half years of his ministry. But it was crucial in validating Jesus' resurrection and the fact that his post-resurrection body was real. Jesus himself made this point in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. He said, see my hands and my feet, that it, is my, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus existed eternally, and Jesus was truly human. A third important truth that we learn in our text is that he is God's self-expression. He is God's self-expression. Notice the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. Now, that prepositional phrase, concerning the word of life, describes the previous four clauses as concerning or being about the word of life. Literally, the Greek text says, the word of the life. John just doesn't want us to miss it. We're talking about real definite things here, the word of the life. Now, some commentators believe that the word here at the end of verse 1 is just a, a synonym for the message. So you could say that the word is the message of the gospel, but it doesn't describe Jesus personally. Of course, the gospel describes Jesus, but the word is really just saying the message about life. However, it's far more likely that the word of life here refers to Jesus himself, not merely the message about him. Why? Well, let me give you several reasons. First of all, John often uses the preposition translated here concerning to describe persons. You can check it out in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Also, secondly, the phrases back in verse 1, those are about a person. Thirdly, what follows in verse 2 requires that we understand the word of life to be a person because he was manifested. They saw him. We can add a, a fourth reason, and that is that John is using this expression that is very close to the one he uses to introduce his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. In both verses, John 1, 1 and 1 John 1, 1, the Greek word is logos. The word for word is logos. It's a concept that appeared in Greek philosophy where it primarily represented reason and rationality, the rational principle by which everything exists. But undoubtedly, John is not dipping into, into Greek philosophy. He's drawing his use of this expression logos, not from Greek philosophy, but from the Hebrew Scripture. And if you go back to the Hebrew Scripture, you find that in the Old Testament, the Word of God is His self-expression in His revelation. It's the nature of God to reveal Himself. And again and again, the prophets say what? The Word of the Lord came to this prophet and that prophet. The Word of the Lord came. For example, Isaiah 38, 4, then the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. This is John's primary emphasis here. 
He's talking about the Word, this person, is God's self-revelation. How do I know that? Because of how John uses it. Go back to his Gospel again. John chapter 1, verse 18. At the very end of his prologue to his Gospel, he writes this, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God. By the way, the word begotten is a word that just means one of a kind, unique. The only begotten God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The Apostle's Proclamation. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces the Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter, as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.